Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, and this is our Thanksgiving episode. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. How do you mark Thanksgiving, J.D.? How do you how do you do it? Because like I, I wonder um, sometimes you often make fun of me for not being sufficiently enculturated in the country of my birth. Um, I sometimes wonder if I'm doing it right, and it seems like there's a, a wide. Uh, you sometimes wonder if you're doing it right. Well, yeah, because one of the things that I've noticed around Thanksgiving is everyone seems to you know start talking about basically families being jerks to each other um, across the table, and that this is somehow. Maybe this is a part of Thanksgiving I've been missing out on all of these years. Being jerked to family members? Yeah, I, like everything I see on on the Twitters or in articles in, you know, intelligent Teen, and Vogue. Like, Teen Vogue, The Atlantic, you know, whatever. Um, they're all much of a muchness as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yeah, you know, basically saying you know how to how to how to set your problem relative straight across the Thanksgiving table about oh, politics or society or religion or whatever it is and. I worry I'm doing it wrong. I is that is that normal? Is that because you, you don't have arguments with your family about politics or religion on Thanksgiving? I don't tend to have arguments with politics about politics or religion with my family at all. Yeah, neither do I. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And if that's the most interesting thing, then you can talk that you can talk about. It seems to me that it's worth considering some other things to talk about. I mean, I, I well, I think I have certainly discussions with my family about politics or religion, but. Probably, maybe not on Thanksgiving because there's so much eating to be done, children to be watched, games to play. Like we like to, we like to play games. Do you guys like to play games? Uh, we used to be a game playing family, although it wasn't Thanksgiving that we would do it on. What sort of, are we talking board games? Are we talking table well, games? I was thinking about like, um, I was, I guess I was thinking about like dominoes, maybe cards, maybe euchre. Hmm. Um, well, maybe we, we used to play probably more like, um board games of various kinds but um but the kids the the kids have really come to enjoy um playing uh dominoes and then there's a couple other games that we play with the older kids that are fun and now i of course i can't think of them but yeah kind of board games or strategy games or things that are you know that sounds very fun i mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll, i'll make a move this year and see if i can get some game playing going uh, i don't know what's going to happen so we are recording this podcast on wednesday afternoon and I don't know what's going to happen for me because I just found out, I got a text from my wife like a second before we started recording this podcast to tell me that one of the children who was to be at our Thanksgiving has the virus. And oh, I don't no. know, and I, I'm not sure anybody does it. Then I realized there's this long text thread going on about that, but I'm not sure if anybody knows what that means for uh, us or whether we'll have, I, I presume that probably means we won't have Thanksgiving because... Um, you know, with with them, I presume we'll have Thanksgiving oh. with our immediate family. I was going to say, you're not going to cancel all of Thanksgiving. For everyone, actually. We're going to cancel for everyone. No, I Harsh. presume that means we won't gather for Thanksgiving because, um, although I think probably most people have the vaccine, if they get it, then they if they test positive or whatever, then they, you know, one, potentially could get sick, but two, like, can't go to work or can't go to what, school, whatever, whatever. So I have a feeling probably that this, this, uh, this is the end for the Thanksgiving. That's a bummer. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I mean, it is what it is, is it not? Well, it depends. Who has who has the supply of meat in the constellation of your extended family? Well, so my wife texted me this. If you're walking away from this with all of the meats, then this could be a win-win scenario for you. My wife texted me this from Costco. So we were supposed to be guests at Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. And we were talking just this morning about how it will be um, 
how it will be, uh, you know, somewhat. We often host Thanksgiving, and uh, and and this year we're not, and so we're talking about kind of how it'll be weird to not have any leftovers. And so my wife was sort of talking about making a Thanksgiving dinner solely so that we could have leftovers for a, a while. And uh, and so she texted me from Costco. She was getting things because she was she's responsible for making some pies, and so she was getting pie things. But we were talking at least this morning about eff- effectively making a spare Thanksgiving dinner for leftovers. And so I think that that will just transition into our main Thanksgiving dinner. I'm so impressed at the idea of an entire second Thanksgiving meal purely <laughs> to service leftover. Well, that if is you're a guest fabulous. somewhere, you know, you're in the you're in this weird position where you don't you, you enjoy Thanksgiving, but the real I think everybody knows the really great part of Thanksgiving is like Friday sandwiches and stuff. I I mean, I no dispute. I am I'm, I'm strongly in favor of the the construction of the perfect Thanksgiving leftover sandwich. This is there. There is a there is both art and science involved in that. So I would agree with that. I mean, uh, the turkey itself and the main sit down part of the meal. I think yeah, probably is a little has become a little anticlimactic for me in terms of what's the most fun to eat. I mean, I don't know. How, I don't know what's going to happen this year um, because normally the I, well, we're in America, so I suppose anything you've done more than three years in a row is now a tradition. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I believe the, in America. Yeah. Uh, the thing that has happened in recent years in amongst my extended family is one of my brothers and I will spend the day smoking meat. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there will usually be a turkey in the oven, you know, to honor the old gods, but my brother and I will, will take care of a second meat or two, yeah. you know, pork belly, burnt ends, lamb, something like that, uh, as a sort of secondary, but my, that brother is not going to be here this year. Um, he's got to go to a wedding with his wife, but his Five children are going to be here, so the the ratio of adults to children has taken a pretty hard shift. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how much time I'm going to have to honor Thanksgiving the way I like to, which is to sit outside by the smoker and drink beer. Can't you invite his children to sort of step into their father's footsteps, say something like, you know, if your dad were here, he would have wanted this, and then help have them smoke meat with you? I, I can try, and th- I mean, don't get me wrong; they're all willing hands, um, but they're very small hands. Oh, these are young children. Oh no, we've got um, on this side of the family. There are seventeen grandchildren, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with eighteen, and I think a nineteenth on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone is under age ten. Oh, okay. So it's not like you. It's not like your brother's going to a wedding, and you could grab like everyone you you could enlist everyone 12 and up to help you with the smoking of the meat oh no i hope one day we will get there and then that will be that will be a sort of school of adulthood for them and Mm -hmm. i I honestly hope that will happen but anyway so i'm gonna punt and instead of doing the really slow stuff i'm just gonna i'm gonna do a a beef loin on the smoker this year yeah you know i was thinking about texting kate and asking her if she would wanted to have a beef but Mm -hmm. now she suddenly has to make a or she probably is going to make a whole Thanksgiving instead of, you know, I, I think wow. I should probably just let, let, let happen what happened. I think it's a good idea. You yeah. just have to accept these things as they come. But yeah, anyway, what I was going to say was between the, between the barbecue, which often gets consumed at least in part while the turkey is being carved and final preparations are underway and the leftover meal the day after and the ability to eat pie for breakfast for three days, um, the actual sitting down eating turkey is is really secondary or tertiary um, in terms of my enjoyment for Thanksgiving, but nevertheless, we're going to do it. It'll be fun. Great. Um, 
I, I tell you what we're going to do on this episode of the Pillar Podcast, if you if you would like, if you, if you will allow me to do so. Please. This this was going to be our Thanksgiving grab bag, but someone just made a suggestion that I think is a pretty cool suggestion, and so we are going to um, undertake it, and we're doing it on the fly. I did not have any more preparation for this than you did, but we're doing it on the fly, and I think it will be interesting. Um, we're going to talk about some things that we think will happen in the life of the church over the next year. Um, we'll each proffer some predictions, and the next Thanksgiving we can um, take a look at them and see how how it went. So those, these are essentially our this is our gravy crystal ball of ecclesial Thanksgiving predictions. I like it. I I feel like we're robbing good potential content for the last episode of the year, but I we do, are where we are. I do. I do think that there's a way in which that a lot of people would expect that at the last episode of the year, but that's why in a certain way we're ahead. If you listen to other Catholic podcasts for mediocre Catholic conversation each week, you know, they'll probably <laughs> do something like this at the end of the year, but here at the Pillar Podcast we're it Sunday's the first Sunday of Advent, and Ed, actually, when does the year begin? Uh, the year begins uh, right now. I mean, between Christ the King and the first Sunday of Advent. So this is the you're this right. This is the, the actual time. That is uh, strong approve, hard approve. I, living... I withdraw my previous um, hesitation. <laughs> this is the correct time, the only correct time to do a year ahead prediction, whatever. Um, and anyone who does it at the end of December is effectively a pagan. I yes, we are living the uh the vita loca as it were no we are living the liturgical years what we're living and therefore we're going to do it now i love it this is great well then i'm going to give as a courtesy i'm going to give the first prediction for something that will happen in the new ecclesial year to you ed oh boy uh okay this is and this is global church or this is global church no no no. it doesn't have to be i mean you can go anywhere from your domestic church to global church i suppose all right um i'm going to predict that the new, the soon-to-be-installed Bishop of Hong Kong will be made a cardinal, and that this will occasion some difficulty or hard discussion about China, Hong Kong, the Holy See, and various other things in between. Um, that is my first call. That we will see a we will see a new red hat coming out of Hong Kong, which will be interesting because if we do that. Um, if we do see that, we will have then three living cardinals out of Hong Kong. I do not think it will happen. You don't think it will happen? Tell no, me why. No, I do not think that the next Archbishop, that the, that the incoming Bishop of Hong Kong will be made a cardinal. Tell me why not. Because, because um, as you know, Ed, uh, here at the Pillar uh, podcast and the Pillar in general, we tend to cover the life of the church and its relationship to the People's Republic of China and the diplomatic agreements they're, they're with and... And these sorts of things. And um, I do not think that um, the Holy See will be keen to provoke the ire of Beijing by appointing a Hong Kong cardinal right now. And but I think that will be enough to deter. Would it not be would it not be equally provocative to effectively take the red hat away from no 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 because you can you can you know what the pocket veto is ed you know what the pocket veto is I do, you can yes. effectively delay this thing until it no longer becomes relevant but right now there is a human rights crisis in hong kong that um you know it has been ongoing now for several years but is is continuing in various ways and a lot of the crisis now has to do with effectively um the juridical rights of, of people who are accused of crimes and effectively the whether hong kong will continue with its understanding and conception of the rule of law or whether or not it will adopt by necessity a more um, mainland China-style rule of law, which is to say governance by fiat. Um, And as a consequence of that, 
there are a lot of protests in China right now. There's a lot of, uh, in Hong Kong right now, there's a lot of dissent in Hong Kong right now, and that's even contributing to some economic instability. And Beijing does not want this to be a, a focus on the world stage, nor does Beijing want um, the situation, the ongoing situation with the Uyghurs to be a focus on the world stage. And there is no way for a Chinese cardinal to be made without global media attention to human rights issues in China. There simply is no way. Okay. The Holy See doesn't want that because they're not willing to, they're not inclined at the moment to talk about human rights issues in China, as they've said many times. And Beijing doesn't want that because they never want it. Okay, but said contra, um, as I mentioned, the two previous bishops, well, okay, two of the three previous bishops of Hong Kong, the third died in office prematurely and so didn't get made a cardinal because his predecessor was still a voting age at the time. But the two living former bishops of Hong Kong are both cardinals, Cardinal Zen and mm-hmm. um, Cardinal John Tong Hong of mm-hmm. Hong Kong, which is insanely fun to say. Yep. Um, so real rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane kind of a situation he's got going on there. Exactly. Yep. Um, but here's the thing. If you don't make Father soon-to-be Bishop Chow of Hong Kong a cardinal, then there will be no Chinese cardinal in the next conclave. And we will notice that. We will no, but it's not just that we will notice that. That is a My loss of is, face for the church in China. That is a, that is a black eye for the the Communist Party of China in their bid to say everything here is fine. The church and the state are working very well together. The Vatican China deal has been successfully implemented. There's nothing to see. Keep walking. If you don't have the traditional Chinese cardinalatial see anymore, then you are effectively saying we can't give the church in China a vote in the conclave or a presence there because of human rights concerns. Now, isn't that a bigger deal? Now, you or I might discuss it. If Father Chow's given a red hat, you and I would certainly discuss why is this not being followed by blah, 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 discussion of all the terrible human rights abuses going on in China. But if there isn't one, that conversation necessarily follows anyway. And it's my read of the Chinese state that they're far more concerned with loss of face than they are with a bunch of foreigners asking um, a bunch of you know impertinent questions about concentration camps. That's um, that's an, <laughs> that's the best counter argument to my view that I think there is. So kudos to you. I'm I'm not convinced. I think that there. W- I think that um, the incoming bishop of Hong Kong will not be made a cardinal. You think that the incoming bishop of Hong Kong within the next year. You think that he will be made a cardinal. September. I'm saying September. Um, but your your argument in favor of it is is probably the best argument for it. The, the point of my view is effectively. That the whole neither the Holy See nor the People's Republic of China is keen to um, put themselves in a position where I, where the Holy See is effectively noted not to um, not to talk about human rights in China from people other than you know us. And Maybe other but people Father Chow is actually very interesting on this topic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true. Earlier this year, when we were first of all, you know, re- reporting the ins and outs of him saying no, and then yes to the position and everything, um, but then he gave his first press conference in which he checked the pillar's coverage. Thank you, Father. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave a very interesting and, I thought, nuanced take Checked, on the situation. by the way, if you're American, is a, is a British, piece of British slang that means referenced. Yes. Name-checked. You have that sort of thing, don't you? We, we tend to say name-dropped, and then we say name-dropped. Oh, damn! But you, you <laughs> say it a little bit more appropriately than that. Okay. Um, okay. But anyway, uh, and, and he talked about things like having himself gone to the um the the victoria park vigil for the annual tiananmen square massacre memorial uh, in 2020 
when the new national security law was being imposed in Hong Kong and that sort of thing was banned, although it was, I mean, the, the timing was a little weird because that's the, the vigil is held in June. The national security law was brought in July 1st, but it was basically being enforced prior to that anyway, because everyone mm-hmm. knew it was coming. That's what the police were doing. Um, and, and he talked about how he would, you know, he would have to revisit his attendance at what are effectively illegal demonstrations in future because of his new position. Mm-hmm. But he, he seemed to have, I thought, a very, he seemed to be able to walk the line mm-hmm. in in his public comments between taking um, uh, a sort of quietistic approach to what was going on in Hong Kong because of the government without at the same time sort of engaging in finger jabbing or deliberate provocation. Um, so I think if anyone could get her, you know, if, if I, I take your point in general about the Holy See not wanting to draw attention to Hong Kong, but in the same way that the Holy See was very particular in its choice of Father Chow and went to great lengths to make sure they got their man for this job, I don't think they would have picked him if they thought they couldn't then do the normal things that you do with the Bishop of Hong Kong. Okay, great. All right. Um, my first prediction. So Ed's first prediction, the Bishop of Hong Kong will be a cardinal by this time next year and will be named a cardinal by this time next year and presumably in September. And I suggest that that will not be the case. My first prediction for the next calendar, well, the next liturgical year in the church's life is that uh, Pope Francis's motto proprio on uh, uh, investigating bishops who are accused of abuse or omissions of uh, abuse of authority or omissions of authority or sexual abuse for that matter um, will be significantly revised at the time um, when it comes for expiration or at the very least that it will be um, given one more year of temporary status while it undergoes significant revisions. Interesting. So you're saying Vos Estes gets rewritten. Vos Estes gets, that that large swaths of Vos Estes get rewritten based upon the lessons of the last three years, that Vos Estes came out rather quickly, that the Holy See sees certain flaws and deficits in Vos Estes. There are parts of Vos Estes that various dicasteries in the Holy See are still at odds over one another with. There are parts of Vos Estes that are rather ambiguous. There are parts of Vos Estes that are not sufficiently spelled out, and that Vos Estes will undergo a fairly significant rewrite. Um, not, not to be, not to be released in March when, you know, the first three years. So Vos Estes was approved, uh, I, I, sorry, in May. Vos Estes was promulgated in May, uh, of 2019. And so it is due for its, and it was given sort of conditional probationary status for three years. So it'll be, it'll be due for re-up in May, 2022, which is coming up. Um, and I, I'm not saying that a wholesale revision of Vos Estes will be ready by May 2022. In fact, I think it won't, but that it will be given a sort of temporary continuity with the understanding that it's being rewritten. Mm, I, I feel somewhat aggrieved by this pick okay. of yours. Why is that? Because it's unfalsifiable by this episode next year, because I would say <laughs> Vos Estes is not going to be substantially redrafted. I think it should be. Uh, but I would say that it's probably not going to be. And because they will have no clear path to coming up with a coherent revised text that is acceptable to all interested and concerned parties, they will punt it indefinitely by just granting it another period at experimentum. Um, well, the way that we would assess it is whether they say anything about revision. I think it's possible that well, they you, will say something about revision or will be able to. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> 
Oh, I, I appreciate your point. But I see Ed, I see a fair number of deficits in Fosesti, Slex Mundi, the Holy See's um, procedural norms for investigating allegations of abuse or misconduct or omissions of necessary acts or abuse or sexual abuse, for that matter, on the part of bishops. And I know you do, too. And I suspect, I mean, let's let's lay out some of the problems with Fosestis if we can. And, and, and therefore, we can identify some of the reasons why it might need to be rewritten or, or addressed. Okay. Well, I would say the, the sort of immediate one is it's not entirely clear what Fosestis is doing as a document. Is it creating new law? Is right. it clarifying the law? Is it an right. instruction on the implementation of existing law? Is it creating it, new, kind, new kinds of canonical crimes? Or is it clarifying what the currently existing canonical crimes mean? And if it's the latter, that means that it can be effectively retrospective. If, mm. it's, the, if it's the former, that is to say, if it's creating new canonical crimes, that means that it only applies going forward. Well, and what's even more confusing is, as you say, it was promulgated in 2019, um, but, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast last week, uh, some of its interpretive function appears to be for the new book six of canon law, which only mm -hmm. comes into force at the beginning of next month. So it mm -hmm. appears to be sort of prospectively interpreting law that didn't even exist at the time it was issued, which is even more confusing. That's right. Yeah. Another issue is that... Um, the uh, the investigative procedure follows a model that we have referred to in the United States as the metropolitan model, which is to say that if a bishop is accused of um, omitting some act of, of governance or covering up some act of abuse or himself engaging in some act of abuse or misconduct, the bishop charged, ordinarily charged with investigating him is the metropolitan of his diocese. And that ha that was at the time understood to be an ecclesial mode of proceeding. That is to say that it sort of leaned on existing ecclesiastical structures because metropolitans, namely the archbishops in a region, are a structure that kind of already exists and they exercise certain kind of leadership prerogatives in their, in their metropolitan see. Uh, I think that, while I don't know the degree to which the Holy See recognizes this, I think that in the doing, there's a recognition that the closeness between metropolitans and their suffragan bishops, the sort of necessary fraternal closeness between metropolitans and their suffragan bishops can lead to questions about the credibility of the investigations because bishops have, because bishops sort of on record praising one another for their pastoral leadership and ministry and attesting to their friendship and close personal relationship um, do not easily claim at the same time to be leading uh, a closed door, unavailable for public scrutiny investigation of, of the other. I'd like to say that's a safe bet that they will revisit that. I don't um, know that they will. It seems to me it's to be a, a clear, very clear, problem. obvious problem I, with the thing. Yeah, I don't know that they will or not. But okay, so if they don't, but I mean, here's the problem with the metropolitan model. It's a bit like democracy. It sounds like a terrible idea, but is it not better than all the alternatives? <laughs> that may well be. That may well be. Because I myself, if you were to ask me for an alternative, I could not, I'm not sure that I could give you one that would be manifestly or obviously better. I mean, they, they, the USCCB attempted to come up with one, mm -hmm. and they were told... Which would have been a sort of lay review board to investigate yeah, and, these things. I mean, I have, I, have many, I have many strong feelings about the, the, not the institution of lay review boards in the United States, but the way in which uh, those lay review boards conduct their business in yeah. many dioceses. And I would not like to see a sort of super lay review board created... Um, with the current praxis of lay review boards in the United States uh, being its template. So yeah. there's that problem. There's also the problem of ecclesiology, which is you can't have a sort of star chamber of external experts yeah. effectively having judicial power over bishops. 
that is not yeah. going to fly. Right. Someone's got to do it. Um, it would be interesting and it will never happen because it would be too cool. And mm-hmm. I have learned in canon law that the the coolest possible option is never the one taken. Um, <laughs> but the creation of some kind of national office of promoter of justice. That would be awesome. To promoter, have, we've talked about that in the past. We've, we've, we've talked about how good that would be and maybe even how important that would be. Well, I don't know um, if we talked about it as a national idea, but certainly within diocese, it's a very we, important No, we talked about that back in 2018, actually. We were uh, doing a different podcast that was manifestly different from this podcast in every single way. And we talked about the notion. So the promoter of justice is essentially the public prosecutor in the church's court system. It's his job to um, bring forward charges if he has if he has knowledge of or reason to suspect a delict, a canonical crime has been committed. And every diocese is supposed to have a promoter of justice, which is Not really cool. Not just supposed cool. to have, required by law. Required by law, that means supposed to, yeah. Which is, is supposed to have a promoter of justice, which, by the way, is a really cool title. And most dioceses have a promoter of justice on paper, someone who occupies the office of promoter of justice in addition to a bunch of other hats in the chancery. But very few dioceses have a sort of fully functioning promoter of justice who is effectively the ombudsman or the public prosecutor of, of the of the church's court system. But a national promoter of justice, which we have talked about before, would be awesome. It would be so cool. And it would solve all of the problems because yeah. the problem right now is you need someone to investigate. Now, you don't uh-huh. need to have judicial authority over a person to investigate them. Yeah. You just have to have a mandate to investigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you said all of the complaints of Vosesti's crimes uh, against bishops or whatever were going to be effectively forwarded to this office of promoter of justice for the territory of the United States and their line of accountability is not to, for example, the USCCB, but to the congregation for bishops in Rome or the CDF or some combination thereof, or to the Holy See more broadly through the nunciature. That would be really super interesting and authentic ecclesiology. And, and an authentic aspect of ecclesiology, yeah, indeed. And, and something which could be reflected in a new and revised um, Vos Estes Lex Mundi. Again, I don't think that a new and revised Vos Estes Lex Mundi will come out in May 2022, but I do think there will be indication that that is the direction that things are going as a, ra- as a wholesale sort of redoing of, of that by virtue of the fact that it gets a sort of one-year um, continuance and um, some acknowledgement that there are revisions underway. All right. I'm going to ask you to put your money where your mouth is here. Accepting that our Holy Father is by all accounts in very good health, he is nevertheless 84. Um, do you see a revised or substantially revised version of Vosestes coming out in this pontificate? Do I see a revised or substantially revised version of Vosestes Lex Mundi coming out in this pontificate? Because let's, I mean, to, to, and I'm not trying to, you know, get into wild speculation about, you know, is Pope Francis going to die one day? We're all going to die one day. But my We're point is... We're all going is, to die one day and then be judged. The general, the general ad experimentum periods granted by the Holy See tend to come in either one year, three year, or five year mm-hmm. periods. Yeah. Say they went the maximum with this, Pope Francis would be 89 yeah. at the end of a five year ad experimentum period if it no, was added I on to this. So I'm I'm simply framing it that way. I think it, even if the Holy See were to put um, put some time and money into it, it would it would be a several year project, which is why I'm not saying a, a new you know new thing is coming out in May. Um, just that it's going to be clear that the thing is going to be substantially re- rewritten. And I think re- realistically, even if they were going to put some money into that and some manpower at it, it's probably... I mean, the funny thing is to say it's a three-year job to rewrite something which was essentially slapped together in one year. But the reason it was slapped together in one year was because of crisis. So now 
from the perception of the Holy See, we're not in crisis, which means that they don't have to sort of slap it together in one year, but that they'll take their time. I see it as at least a three-year job. Um, I would add anything that takes three years to write in Rome then requires another 18 months to fight over it before it's right. So you're asking me, do I think that the, that the, it's a great question, Ed. No, I'm not, I, I would not put money on a new Vos Estes coming out during this pontificate. Okay. Okay. Okay, so I, I'm t- my takeaway from this is your call for next year is <laughs> Vos Estes effectively gets reaffirmed ad infinitum, at least for the foreseeable future well, in its current form, even if the attempt and the intention is to revisit it. My point is that Vos Estes will, will not be, Vos Estes will not be confirmed in its current form indefinitely, right? It will not be given permanency. It will not be um, given permanence, but it... Right. And there will be, I think, clear indication that the thing is going to be rewritten um, but, but nevertheless, yes. it will continue as is. Nevertheless, for the foreseeable future. Okay. I don't want to quibble. I'm you just... give me a prediction, and I'm going to take. I'm going to take it down, buddy. <laughs> You've already. That, I thought I didn't. I was not. I did not come ready for this game of predict the future, and I'll tell you why it's, you're wrong. But well, um, I like it. It's a good game. It yeah, is. A, it's a great game. Um, okay, I will say that we will see the replacement of a major U.S. metropolitan C. Oh, that's... Sure. Why? You say sure. Have you looked at the... Look at the the relative ages of the bishops who are... And by major, I'm saying, let's... What are the big ones? Uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, L.A., Houston. Uh, Am I missing any? The traditionally cardinalatia ones, effectively. Mm, okay, so New York, Boston, L.A. The traditionally cardinalatial sees New York, Boston, L.A., Washington, Chicago, um, and Philly. Chicago and Philly. Well, Philly's no longer, um, but okay, Philly is no longer, and Philly Baltimore in is also no longer. I guess so. You can take those two off the table. But um, Chicago, okay. New York, L.A., Houston, Boston. One of those New- five will change over. Newark has become a cardinalatial see. Would you like to include Newark? No, Newark is not a cardinal. You shall see and never will be. It, the current incumbent happens to be a cardinal, but he would have been a cardinal if he'd stayed in Indianapolis, and he will be a cardinal if he moves to Anchorage. Now, the bishop of the bishop of none of those places is close to seventy-five. I don't think. So why do you why do you think that this is going to happen? Well, well, I don't want yeah, to. Let's quibble, see. But... Cardinal Tobin is seventy-three and a half. Uh, oh no, he not. No, Cardinal Tobin is way young. Cardinal Tobin is like yeah, sixty-nine. No, he, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm looking at this chart of bishops and their ages, but. Cardinal Tobin is not 73 and a half. Bishop Tobin is 73 and a half. The oh. bishops of none of those places, I don't think, is that close to 75. So why do you think this is going to happen? Well, first of all, Cardinal Malley is 77. Oh, right. Cardinal He's Malley is 77. Already. So it's a gimme. No, it's not a gimme. It's There's a no gimme. reason to believe Cardinal Malley won't be asked to continue in post at least until 79. That seems to be the practice of the Pope when he's got someone he likes doing a job that he it wants to do. It certainly was the case for, for um, uh, uh, Whirl. It was the case for Whirl. Um, mm-hmm. There are currently two heads of, well, no, okay, there were until recently two heads of Roman dicasteries who were knocking on the door of 80. One of them is still in situ, mm-hmm. and the other one has only just been replaced. So yeah. the Pope has no problem in keeping people going. Um, Augustinoia is almost 79. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So do you I'm think it will be O'Malley or do you think over- it will be... I don't know. Oh, it could be O'Malley. I, this is why I'm making a broad call that one of them, to, one of the five, turns over, and there's maybe you will see, for example, Cardinal O'Malley being um, allowed to retire. Maybe you'll see one of them put in for early retirement. We have, um, we we never know when a when a bishop might just say, you know what, I'm I'm feeling the strain. 
I, and I, I think like... you do know something that you're not saying right now. No, that's that's not true. Also, there's the possibility that they're one of one of the uh, current incumbents could be called to Rome, could be elevated to a bigger job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think you do know something that you're not saying right now. No, that's not true. So okay, so I do if not I think... knew something I'm not saying right now, JD, we'd have already written about it. It'd be on our I website. I do not think It'd that Cardinal Donardo... in advance. Okay, so let's go through that. I do not think that Cardinal Donardo will. Um... Uh, I do not think that Cardinal Donardo will get a job in Rome, and I don't think that you think that Cardinal Donardo will get a job in Rome. Cardinal Donardo is only 72, so unless he has a health uh, health issue, well, he's not going to be out. He has had some health issues. He's had, had some health issues. Yeah. I think um, he's doing fine now. He looked fine in Baltimore when I saw him. I do. I didn't see him, actually. I was looking for him in Baltimore, but I didn't see him. I do not think that Cardinal Dolan will, get a, will be appointed to lead a dicastri in Rome. I do think that it's possible that if some other kind of position were to open in rome you know that cardinal dolan might leave new york for something else you know like not you know the question he'd be really good at because he and wanted I'd, it but he i'm not suggesting what. that i want to see cardinal dolan leave the archdiocese of new york i'm sure he's having fun there and doing a great job but since we're engaged in wild wish for um wild forecasting for the next year mm-hmm. assuming the order of malta ever gets its constitutional act together and, and out. we're to get a new cardinal protector, Dolan would be a good cardinal protector. Well, so we currently have a cardinal patron, which is still Cardinal Burke. Right, right, right. Although he's basically been sidelined and told not to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. We have a but cardinal delegate. he still has the job. He still has the title. Yeah. There's a cardinal, cardinal delegate, delegate. Mm-hmm. who's yeah. overseeing the constitutional reform of the order, mm-hmm. although presumably his role as effective viceroy mm-hmm. um, will lapse when they have a new grandmaster. Mm-hmm. And they will probably, the Pope will probably want to see a sort of fresh turning of the page. I could see Cardinal Dolan doing that if he wanted it. I don't know if he'd want it or not. I think he would want it because for a while it was kind of rumored that Cardinal Dolan might become the Cardinal protector of the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulchre. And then he didn't get that. But I I, I mean, look, Archbishop of New York is a hard job, obviously. I mean, it should go without saying that Archbishop of New York is a big job. A lot of mileage on that. Yeah, high mileage on it. And the guy got it. He wasn't even 60 when he got the job. So he's been in it now for well over a decade, coming on, um, you know, well, yeah, well, 12 years, 13 years or something like that. And I, and I could see him just keen to have something that would be a little less sort of day-to-day demanding. Yeah. And and also continuing down the sort of list of possible possibilities that have led to this prediction is you have, as I mentioned, the heads of several Roman dicasteries that are... right. Knocking on the door of retirement age. Right. Um, the Pope is going to need some new blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there are cardinals in the United States. For example, Cardinal Tobin of Newark, who speak Romanitas, have mm-hmm. spent time in Rome working in the Curia before, um, are, you know, know the ropes over there, have a certain amount of... And Cardinal um, Tobin was, sec- was the secretary of the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life. So he has serious Vatican experience. Serious senior level Vatican experience. I... I would not. Um, I would not rub my eyes in disbelief if I read in the Bulletino one morning that Cardinal Tobin had been asked to, you know, be the next prefect for the Congregation of Bishops or something like that. I could. I could see that happening. I. I you know, the, the conventional sort of wisdom, as it were, if if you want to put it that way, there has been there has been a sort of conventional prediction which suggests that Cardinal Supich might become the prefect for the Congregation for Bishops, and I've never put any stock in that. I nope. just do not see nope. it happening under any circumstances. I spend um, a lot of time talking to people at the Congregation yep, for I Bishops know. as we occasionally get yelled at for doing mm-hmm. and i've not heard that yeah i just, I just do not yeah i just do not think that will happen so if it happens you're probably right that cardinal tobin to a vatican job or 
Cardinal Dolan to a traditional cardinal lace. I don't want to say sinecure, but to a tradition to the kind of thing which is a traditional sort of uh, easing down, down, down shifting for a cardinal would be the most likely prospects by which one of those cardinal angel sees would see. Although you can't count, um, you can't count Tobin to, to the Holy See because you said at the beginning of your prediction that you were not including Newark. Oh, rats. <laughs> I was hoping, as I was saying, it was hoping you were going to realize I contradicted myself there. So what you're basically saying is that it seems to me that your prediction is essentially that Cardinal O'Malley, who is 77, might retire in the next year. Uh, because you've might. already said you don't think Supich would go to Rome. No, but Dolan might, Dolan might do something. Or that Cardinal Dolan might get some kind of a job like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because Gregory's not going anywhere. Donato's no, not Gregory's going not anywhere. going anywhere. Gomez isn't going anywhere. No. So that leaves you with Dolan of downshifting, let's say, or O'Malley retiring. But you said at the beginning that you didn't think O'Malley was going to retire, so I'm counting that out of your prediction. No, I'm not saying that he's... It's not going to happen. I, the, the reason I was casting a broad net and saying one of the big five is going to move is because I see a couple of different ways in which one of them might. But the only two ways that you see in which it might now are that Dolan downshifts or that O'Malley retires. Uh, those are the two obvious ones, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So 77-year-old retires or 71-year-old gets a new job. Yeah. Okay. We shall see. All right. Is it my turn? It is your turn. And this is my third prediction, is it not? No, this is your second prediction. Oh, this is my second prediction. Okay, so I have a little bit of room here to uh, to make further predictions. I've just got. I've just figured out what my next prediction is going to be, and it's a good one. So go ahead. <laughs> I predict that while there was initial, initially broad support for the Eucharistic revival project from a bishops and, who might be identified as both left and right. And while there was initial support for the Eucharistic Revival Project from Catholic media outlets who might be described as left and right, um, enthusiasm among those who might be described as left will wane considerably for the Eucharistic Revival Project over the next year with two lines of criticism. One, the cost. And two, disagreement with an emphasis on Eucharistic adoration and other kinds of Eucharistic devotions. You're, You're not seriously suggesting that the synodal spirit of the recent USCCB meeting on on the Eucharist will break down. Shortly. By this time next year, it will be a tagline of many, many people to say um, that divide that divorcing our attachment to the Eucharistic sacrifice from our attachment to the local parish is problematic um, theologically and pastorally, and that the Eucharistic Revival Project, which takes the Eucharist out of the parish and into some larger body, is by that fact problematic and should be avoided. That so you're the saying that, that there's going to be a concerted see. attempt to advance a sort of communitarian understanding. I of suspect the... that we shall see precisely that. That is a depressing and spicy <laughs> and overwhelmingly Likely. reasonable sounding call. <laughs> yes, I would I love just... to. I'd love to trash your idea just because I feel like that's what we're doing now. But I think you're probably 100 no, percent right. I think right that, on that a lot of, that the language about the Eucharistic Revival Project that that. Beginning at the time of the so the Eucharistic Revival Project is a three-year project launched by the USCCB, the office, of, the uh, excuse me, the, the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, which aims to form people for um, greater devotion to and love for the Eucharist, um, the the celebration of the Eucharist, which is to say the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and devotion to the Eucharist in things like adoration and Eucharistic processions, and and other and other such Eucharistic devotions. Um, the Eucharistic 
revival is due to kick off on the Feast of Corpus Christi 2022 with the idea that every diocese should have a procession, a Eucharistic procession, with the bishop holding a monstrance and wearing a... Uh, what's the cope. thing where your hands don't touch the thing, though? A cope? A cope. The cope's the cape, but what's the thing where your hands don't touch the thing? Oh. I don't know about vestments, but... I don't know. I know the thing you're talking about. The thing so that you can hold the monstrance. Every the liturgical oven gloves like, that wrap don't. around. <laughs> Every priest who listens to us is like, these guys don't know anything. The humor I have male. never claimed to know anything about liturgical vestments. I don't know anything about liturgical vestments. vestments. I, have, I have been absolutely clear that I don't know that much about liturgical vestments. If but it ain't in the where, code, it's not on but my this radar. this is where our priest audience remembers for a moment that we did not go to seminary and they're a little <laughs> bit bummed. They're like... They're like, we thought you guys understood us. We do understand you, fathers. It's just that we don't always remember the name of the humeral veil because we don't there ever we wear go. such a thing. Humeral I, veil. I got it. Yes. So the idea, Good reach. Of the, the idea of the Eucharistic, uh, because I remembered what a humerus is, the idea of, a, um, of, a, of the Eucharistic revival project is that um, bishops wearing humeral veils will, um, will process with the Eucharist around their cathedrals and ideally around their cities, um, carrying um, Jesus Christ in the under the appearance of bread in the Eucharist in a monstrance. And, You're entirely uh, right that that um, modern historians at left-of-center Catholic universities will decry this as a pre-Vatican II. As a pre-Vatican II, taking the Eucharist back to the—taking us all back to the Tridentine Church, and that these devotions seem unusual in a way that is problematic and off-putting and a kind of unjust proselytization in the modern world, and that the focus should be—so as not to decry the thing entirely— um, th- there will be a desire not to sort of condemn entirely the notion of the Eucharistic revival. So there will be an effort to re-emphasize to emphasize, um, the centrality of Mass in the parish as the principal thing which should be done. And I think I, I would like to say, I would hope everyone agree would agree that the Mass, the Eucharistic sacrifice, is the source and summit of the Christian life, because it is. And I would hope everyone would agree that the parish is the locus of Christian life, because it is. The ordinary locus of Christian life, because it is. But... I anticipate that that will become um, the means by which a cadre of voices are critical of the Eucharistic revival, and that will lead to, uh, regrettably, I pray this is not the case. I hope that I'm wrong. You've never once hoped that you were wrong. No, I desperately hope that I'm wrong, because this is a cynical prediction. But there is a way in which the response to that, if it is not managed carefully, the response of people who want to support the Eucharistic Revival Project, or bishops who want to support the Eucharistic Revival Project, there is a way in which the Eucharistic, the response to that could lead to the sort of wholesale politicization of the entire thing, in which it becomes simply, the Eucharistic Revival Project becomes simply a sort of proxy totem in the ongoing um, disagreements among bishops and other ecclesiastics about how to engage with the, for how the church ought to engage with the modern world. And it would be, for, to my point of view, deeply unfortunate if something which is aimed to stir and to flame the gift that we've been given at our baptism and in our confirmation and in the Holy Eucharist is turned into a battleground, not just for disagreement among bishops, but for disagreement among the commentariat, the sort of self-anointed play-by-play callers of the whole thing. Um, it would be deeply unfortunate if, if, if the thing became a proxy war for that. But Ed, that is my prediction. I think you're probably right. You, yeah. you definitely didn't mention how Traditionis Custodes is going to feature into that whole narrative and count on it doing so. Well, Traditionis Custodes is going to fit into that entire narrative. I was trying to decide whether I should make another prediction about Traditionis Custodes okay, or not. Okay, well, I'll leave it then. I, suffice to say but that I, any I, argument I'm that I'm not saying that up, I have decided that I will, but I'm, yeah. Okay, I would just parenthetically note that any argument 
along the lines you outlined, which suggests that the only appropriate context in which to either speak about or live the Eucharist is in the local parish that that's got TC interpretation and implementation written all over it. Oh yeah. So I'd say traditional Anarchist studies will be an aspect of this. And in, there is a way in which God help us, oh, man. You this seem to be a, predicting for next year further politicization of the Eucharist amongst the USCCB, which I find remarkably bummer. cynical, given that we just had a profoundly synodal and it fraternal was cool, experience. Actually, and I was optimistic about it and all those things, but there is a way in which, ultimately, support for some aspects of the Eucharistic Revival Project will be taken or characterized in some corners of the Catholic commentariat as anti-Francis sentiment. Oh, Yes. Give in, J.D., you're turning into me, and I love it. Oh, isn't that sad? (laughs) So one lesson there is not to pay attention to the Catholic commentary, even in the slightest. This is conversation. This is not commentary. This is great Catholic conversation, and that's a totally different thing. And what we do for our day job is is reporting news, and that's a different thing, too. This is how we blow off steam. This is how we blow off steam. But um, one lesson is not to let the voices that would do such things in too deeply, but... Uh, gosh, there is a way in which those things may well happen. One would wish that the Eucharistic Revival Project... Now, there are people asking questions about the money of the Eucharistic Revival Project, and I've already said, I think, you know, there's a... Okay, fair enough, and that's a discussion that ought to be had and these kinds of things. I've said that on different on, on the show before, but... Um, golly gee, one would wish that there would be a broad sentiment of, of affirmation for a project which effectively aims people to fall more deeply in love with Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. But especially because, you know, today, like Cardinal Supich, for example, wrote a thing in, I think, Commonweal saying that the Eucharistic Revival Project was really important and stuff. So to date, there has been sort of broad support among the Episcopate for it. But I think that there is already the um, indications and penumbra of the ways in which that might unravel. It's a good call. Okay. All right. So this is my third... Pick. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Evangelium Preducate, or Preducate Evangelium, however way around you wish to say it. Uh, the much drafted, the often drafted, never promulgated new apostolic constitution on the Roman Curia will not <laughs> be issued in 2022. It was not issued in 2019. It was not issued in 2020. Unless something happens that I am really not expecting in the next few weeks. It's not coming out in 2021. And I expect we will have another round of a draft will sort of float and circulate in the early months of next year. We will be told in serious tones by people making very intense eye contact. It's coming out in June. We really mean it this time. (laughs) June will come and go and they say, no, no, no. It just needed some tweaks and it's gone out for a bit of consultation. But after the summer, it's definitely happening. And after the August recess is over, everyone's going to say, no, no, it's coming. It's coming. It's going to be in, you watch. It's going to be in October. You, You watch and nothing will happen. That's hmm. my call. No new constitution for the Roman Curia in 2022. All right. All smoke, no fire. All right. There's a part of me that for my last prediction would like to predict. You're not going to um, push back on that at all? Oh, I forgot that's the thing. No, I no, you don't have to. I'm just... If, if Sorry, really... I kind of got... I became a little bit self-referential there because I've just now been thinking about what my last prediction should be. No, <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. I do not think that there's... Uh, I do not think that there's a reasonable chance that the Roman Curia will be um, will be reformed in the next, um, within the next year, or that there will be the Apostolic Constitution, which is designed to reform the Roman Curia. I do not think that there's a reasonable chance to expect that those things will come out. Why? Right now, um, 
a fair amount of the Holy See's energy is focused on the um, uh, synod on synodality, uh, the global synod on synodality. And two, um, although things are maybe not as bad as seemed, and although maybe the financial situation is stabilizing a little bit, the Roman Curia is still deeply, deeply in a cash crunch, a very serious cash crunch. And um, that can you know how it is when you're broke, all you can think about is being broke, right? I mean, it's hard to sort of get other things going when you're really broke, because you're just sort of trying to always figure out how to say one, uh, one jump ahead of the, um, one jump ahead of the land, one, yeah, you know, I think it's one jump ahead of the hitman if we're going one jump ahead of the hitman yeah one jump ahead of the hitman as i've mentioned on this podcast before i can go almost word perfect on any disney song lion king and previous what comes after that one jump ahead of the hitman one swing ahead of the sword i steal only what i can't afford and that's what i can't afford and that's everything stop thief scoundrel okay so you know how it is when you're broke you're just trying to stay one jump ahead of the hitman as it were and, uh, and so I think that that will probably continue to keep Predicate and Evangelic on ice, plus the fact that there's just, uh, that the crisis, the ongoing crisis at the Secretary of State makes it very difficult to make any changes, which would um, change the status of the Secretary of State or seem to elevate it. And at the same time, no one's keen to sort of seem to seem to, seem to demote it either. And so the ongoing sort of crisis of crises, compounded nested crises at the Secretary of State make things very, very difficult, which may feed into my third prediction. Okay, what is your third prediction? Well, what I wanted to do, Ed, is predict who will be elected the next president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And I, the reason I wanted to do that is because this mm. we are in a very, very unique situation. We are. In the, in the USCCB right now. And um, the reason for that is because ordinarily... Um, the, the VP becomes P-elect. Right, ordinarily, the bishops, elect, the, you, the bishops of the United States... Conference of Catholic Bishops elect the vice president of the Conference of Catholic Bishops to be their new president. There are exceptions to that. The Dolan, the Dolan thing, for example, when when um, then Archbishop Dolan, well, was he cardinal then? Well, when that when 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 no, Dolan, he was not cardinal. I don't think at that point. Okay, well then when then Archbishop well, no, maybe Dolan, he was. maybe I can't see, remember. This is why I'm not 100 yeah. percent sure. But when the, when Dolan, as he it has were, been Archbishop of New York for a very long for time. For a very long time. That's exactly right. When Dolan uh, was elected to be the president of the USCCB, even though it was supposed to be Kikanis' turn, and that kind of broke the old system, which is that they used to sort of take turns with a guy who was considered to be a little bit more conservative, followed by a guy who was considered to be progressive, followed by a guy who was considered to be conservative. Dolan, Dolan's election kind of broke the the turn-taking system, and you haven't seen it revived yet. Um, you know, you haven't seen it come back uh, since that time. But um, uh, we're in an even more unusual situation this time in that the current vice president of the conference will turn 75, uh, is too close to 75. In other words, were he to be elected president, he would turn 75 during his tenure. And uh, and that causes a problem because it's not clear that one can be president after one has submitted his retirement to the USCCB or to the Holy Father, especially if the Holy Father accepts the retirement. And so insofar as I understand it, Archbishop Vigneron does not intend to run for the presidency. Um, I, it's, it's, everyone I've talked with has said effectively the same thing. It is unclear what the statutes of the conference allow for in this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time, it does not seem to be Archbishop Vigneron's intention, who is the current vice president to run. And there are a few reasons for that. One of which is you can't, you have to be a diocesan bishop to be the president of the conference. You can't, uh, well, no, you have to, you have to be in office to be the president of conference. You can't be a retired bishop. I think you could 
be an you can't actually you can't actually hold office in the USCCB if you're an emeritus bishop. If you're an emeritus bishop, right? And so because um, you don't even would, have active voice, I don't think if you're an emeritus right, bishop. Right. That's exactly right. You you can't vote for the president either. And so it would be um, it would effectively seem to tie the hands of the pope if uh, if he were if Archbishop Vignon were holding this position at the same time that he. Uh, reached retirement age. Well, so that's for, yeah, or force his hand to say, if you accept my resignation, you're de facto firing the you're president. You're de facto of the firing con- the president of the conference. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so there is a sense in which, um, insofar as I understand it, Archbishop Vignon does not intend to run to be president of the conference as a consequence of this age thing. So that means that uh, it's open season in a certain way, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, who who will the um, secretary of the conference or the newly elected treasurer of the conference be a reasonable, you know, possibility, someone who had been on the executive committee before. Yeah, it seems like those are sort of reasonable possibilities. But are there other reasonable possibilities? Um, some of the mm-hmm. people who, who came in kind of close last time. So so the secretary of the conference is Archbishop Brolio, and the newly mm-hmm. elected treasurer of the conference is Bishop Cecchio. Cecchio, yes. Cecchio. Uh, Metuchen. Of, of, of Metuchen, um, New Jersey. Um, so are either of them possible candidates, especially Brolio, who's been on the um, executive committee of the conference a little bit longer? Sure, they are. But is it a gimme? No. no. And so therefore, I don't, I, you know, it's unusual not to be able, this is one thing, it's absolutely unusual not to be able to predict. But we will see the election of a new uh, president of the conference next, in November, one year from now, or less than one year from now now. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's sort of open, open season in a certain way. That's not a prediction so far. You've you've just looked no, at the calendar. No, that's my point. Is what I've done is say um, ah. it is unusual that I am unable. I wanted to predict this, but I really don't think that I can. Um, but I'm sort of forestalling my actual prediction because I thought this would be a fun thing to talk about. It is a fun thing. To, oh, so you have an actual pick? I no, I don't have a pick. This is not the thing that I'm making a prediction about. I raise this to say I'm not going to make a prediction about this. I'm raising a topic of conversation, which Build is me not up, a pick. Buttercup. I thought we were going to give give predictions well, for who's going to be the chairman in an open do, field a year out. What we can do is suggest who we think are some of the front runners. And if you'd like to make a side wager on those, I'm perfectly okay. happy to do okay. that. Okay. Oh, so we're going to talk but about the front runners. All I okay. want is for this not to be my turn. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to have the conversation, but I, I didn't want it to be my turn because I, I want to be point clear. Is it's not an easy thing to predict. Nothing you have just said constitutes your prediction for next year. No, that's exactly right. 100%. Okay. And you that now I want to talk about more stuff prediction. that also will not constitute your prediction so for I next year. So I will make my prediction. This is a sort of, this is a, this is an intermezzo in which we do a little bit of entertainment by talking about something that I'm not making a prediction about. Okay. Although, if you would like to make sort of predictions, I'm no, happy no, no, for no. us to do that. No, 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 okay. Intermezzo predictions. All right. I will offer three people now that I think will be potential out there front okay. runners. But here's the thing. I think we should do it at the... Like, we should each say... We should say one, two, three, and then say the names of the three people. Or write them down. We should write them down. All right. Let, let's write them down because it, the one, two, three thing is not going to work. The one, two, three thing is stupid. I can't believe you suggested that. I will write down three names. And I'm writing this is down not, three names. Is, is this inclusive of Brolio and Cecchio? Or are we... Are, this is three names you apart from... You can include one them. of them. No, you can include one of them. You can you include, include, all, you can include of both of them if you want. It just I think you'd be imprudent because I think you'd be wrong. I would agree. I think one of them is possibly in play and the other one probably not. I would agree. I, I bet I can predict what your predictions are. Okay, I have my three. Um, I have two and I'm working on my third. Locked. Okay, go. Okay, okay. Brolio. Yes. Easy forever. Coakley. 
Interesting. Okay. Archbishop Paul Coakley came cl- was was close to was close. He was among the you know vote getters last time, and he was pretty close. And mm-hmm. he's on the executive or he's on the administrative committee of the conference, and he's done a bunch of things. And I, I see him as a potential candidate. Mm-hmm. And my third is a dark horse, but I'm going to tell you who he is, and then I'll tell you why I'm putting him. My third is the dark horse, Kevin Rhodes. And the reason I put Kevin Rhodes as a dark horse said is because it seems to me that he has. Um, garnered broad acclaim and support among his brother bishops for shepherding the Eucharistic document through the difficult process of the last six months. And a lot of guys have said to me how much sort of uh, humility and lack of personal ambition he did it with. And uh, and that may well be seen as a set of um, a set of welcome candidates for the next president of the OCCB. Okay, so I agree with you on two of your three. Uh, I also had Berlio. Okay. I also had Bishop Rhodes for hey, much of the dark horse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he's not my dark horse. Okay, who's your dark horse? Um, all the reasons you say for Bishop Rhodes, I would agree. And you know, nobody has had a bad word to say about how things have gone since the June, June meeting and the formation of the Eucharistic document, which is huge. Yeah, it's a big deal because nobody had nice things to say prior right. to June. Right. Um, so that is that is in large part down to his stewardship of the doctrine committee mm-hmm. and shepherding of this document, and he's. Mm-hmm. That that's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. He was also, I I have to say, uh, he's emerged as a very competent media performer. Yeah, spokesperson. Um, and I don't thing, mean yeah. that as a I don't mean that as, you know as in he he jives well for the camera. I just mean he's he's fluent and articulate. He doesn't seem to be scared of questions. He's happy to you know speak in whole paragraphs. Mm-hmm. He's you know, I, I found him a compelling front man for the yep. conference, and mm-hmm. that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, my dark horse is Bishop Seitz. Oh, interesting who was just recently elected chairman of the Committee on Migration. Migration. Bishop of El Paso. Bishop of El Paso, the border bishop, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he he won that election handily. Com- handily. Right. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by this. He did. Not because I was handicapping Bishop Seitz and thinking that he couldn't or shouldn't attract widespread support, but I had handicapped that as a very close race. Um, I, in fact, I think I picked him to win i don't remember um but anyway i i was surprised by the level of support um behind him for that office and it is going to be a very front and center role in the next 12 months and i think if bishop sites inhabits that new role and the the kind of issues he's going to be called upon to address which are going to be sensitive and public and public policy adjacent if he acquits himself well and fluently, and uh, I have every reason to believe he will, I think he will only build on that level of support among the bishops. And crucially, he is a bishop who Pope Francis has more than once singled out and to call back to earlier, there's a name checked. Um, mm-hmm. Pope Francis has in the past referred to the Bishop of El Paso it's as true, it's true. that kind of bishop is what he's into. And I think it would be very interesting to have um, a president of the conference who was very publicly a a bishop known to Pope Francis and enjoys broad support amongst his brother bishops and can speak across a range of sensitive public issues all at once. So my dark horse pick is him. That's fair. But I, I hear it. I, I, I don't see it, but I hear, hear your argument for it. Now, I'll tell you who I think is a, is going to be a central kingmaker in this election. Again, where we have a sort of wide open field, which is an unusual situation. Okay. And I'll tell you why. I think a person who will be tremendously influential behind the scenes of the election of the next Archbishop, or the next president of the USCCB is Archbishop Joe Kurtz. Here's why. 
Uh, Archbishop Kurtz, by the way, is the Archbishop of Louisville, Kentucky, and um, recently, in fact, turned 75, submitted his resignation to the Pope. He, you know, has had some serious health problems. He uh, he had bladder cancer. So, you know, I think that he his replacement will be appointed relatively soon, in fact. But um, Kurtz, as you know, is a past president of the USCCB and is known in many ways for his personal moderation and his, his disposition towards sort of listening and forging consensus among the bishops. Lots of guys regard him highly for that. And Kurtz was selected, as it were, to give um, the sermon or homily or exhortation to the bishops on essentially brotherhood and fraternal unity at the um, during their sort of holy hour at the beginning of the of, of the, the meeting last week. Kurtz was selected at a moment of incredible division among the USCCB when their last meeting was um, uncomfortably argumentative even for us um, to be the voice responsible for calling the bishops to unity and to um, and common conversion? prayer and to a sense of sort of renewal in fraternity. Sorry, what did you say? And conversion. And conversion. And in a certain way, it, it seems to many bishops to have worked, which is to say many bishops uh, uh, sort of on, you know, of all theological perspectives have said that they experience those things at the meeting. So in a certain way, I think Kurtz's stock, as it were, has never been higher in terms of someone, in terms of a voice of wisdom and um, and prudence and sound judgment. And therefore, I think if he is, a, if he chooses to uh, encourage the appointment of one bishop or another, or excuse me, the election of one bishop or another, I have to imagine that carries a lot of weight. That is That is some interesting tea leaf reading. I like it. Okay. Would you like my prediction? I would. I've been waiting for it for about 15 minutes now. <laughs> One year from now, the trial of Angelo Becciu and Associates will be completely off the rails. With, really? Um, you think yeah, no with, resolution whatsoever? With no resolution whatsoever, wreck. but probably in some sort of indefinite hiatus for judicial deliberations or ongoing investigation or something like that. The trial is already struggling, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Um, because the defense say that the prosecutors have not turned over a sufficient amount of evidence. The judges seem to agree with that. The judges have encouraged more depositions. And then when the judges encouraged more depositions, a major wrench was thrown into everything by the possibility that the Pope was sort of far more connected to uh, the goings-on of the London deal, and especially the very last stage of the London deal at which Jean-Louis Torsi is alleged to have extorted the Holy See for lots and lots of money and claims, in fact, that he did no such thing, but rather got everything signed off on. The Pope is at the center of that in an uncomfortable way that is, again, putting some breaks on the process. And one conclusion that comes out of all of that is the notion that the prosecutor, the prosecutorial team, which are underfunded and understaffed, may well be in way over their heads. And at the end of the day, where I think that probably leads things is limping along with some more hearings and evidentiary wrangles, but no... um, no closer to the actual sort of, dis, the, you know, dispositive part of the trial, the substantial aspects of the trial than we are now, and no sort of clarity that that is coming at any time soon. You're wrong. <laughs> Here's what's going to happen. Okay. Some of the charges and indictments will be completely thrown out. Mm-hmm, they will be ruled mm-hmm. null and chucked. When you indict 10 people, mm-hmm. the general idea is, it's so that you can let four or five of them go away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even six, maybe seven. 
But I will say that what will happen is by this time next year, you will be facing a very pared down, but still ongoing, still very live on track process against some individuals. I would say Cardinal Betchew absolutely among them. Um, I think some of the other fish will get through the net. I think you will see some of the businessmen, perhaps Raffaele Mincioni, who I think his fate in the Vatican court will be largely determined by the deliberations of a London court where he filed for um, judicial relief, uh, effectively. Um, you know, a, a finding that he conducted his, his yeah. business affairs with the Holy See above board. I think that that whole thing will eventually end up being litigated in London and not in the Vatican. I think there are some other smaller fish that might get through the net. I think you might see Cecilia Maragna cop a plea deal. She might, um, she might flip. She might, she might turn rat. She might go state's evidence. Uh, she might therefore do that in exchange for charges against her being dropped. Who knows? Um, and this whole thing about Pope Francis being way more involved in the London deal than people knew. And right. That, first of all, that's not true. I mean, people are making a big song and dance of it now because Crosso's lawyers said, oh, well, there's, you know, on on the tapes with Monsignor Prolasco, the prosecutor could be heard saying we spoke to the Holy Father about um, how he had met with, you know, no, people in the deal. The Holy Father said you've got to deal with Torsi because there's nothing else we can do. Well, my point is this is all known. This is all known years ago. We were reporting that the Pope had an audience, gave a private audience private on audience Boxing and, Day right. in 2018 mm-hmm. with Torsi. We were reporting that two years ago, three Boxing years ago. Boxing Day for you Americans at home is December 26th. Right. There's a photo of Pope Francis and Gian Luigi Torzi. It's been out there for ages. Like this is this is all known stuff. None of this is new. None of this is you know. Oh my gosh, the Pope was involved. It's like this this is known. Like everybody everybody who's been following by the way, Saint Stephen's Day, commemorating the feast of Saint Stephen the first Christian martyr. Proceed. Yeah. Anyone who has been following the ins and outs of this trial from the beginning knew all of this already. Yeah, the Pope is instrumental in it. The Pope is instrumental in everything that goes on the Vatican because it's an absolute monarchy. Deal with it. But you don't think that's going to throw a wrench in the works? No, I, like I said, I think that there will be you. You will see a substantial revisiting of the of the charge sheet and the indictment, uh, the indictees. I think you will see as many as half um, let off the hook. Charges will be dropped, and they'll just decide that they can't prosecute. It's the wrong forum or whatever else. But you will see the the Vatican. Secretary of State's financial scandal trial will very much either be resolved or very much a live issue for some of the defendants, especially and including Cardinal Betchew this time next year. They are too far down the track. You can't let it go. We shall see. I I, uh, do not predict the same, but we shall see. Um, and then we shall revisit our our our, uh, our predictions next year. But before we wrap up, Ed, uh, the final thing that we need to do very quickly is um, we're each going to offer one thing in the life of the church for which we are thankful and which gives us, uh, which is for us on this Thanksgiving Day, a source of hope. Um, all right. Can you go first? Not because I, I because I, I I feel like you have ideas yeah. in mind, and I want to I want to be able to pick a similar example and not like go wildly outside of the box of what it is you have in mind. Well, for me, it is the enthusiasm that I have seen and the support that I have seen from many people for the notion of a Eucharistic revival, a project that aims to call people, invite people to conversion and to deeper intimacy with the Lord. Okay. In that case, I'm going to say it is the increasing uh, clarity and volume with which bishops in the church, particularly the church in the United States, have in recent weeks begun speaking about the church as fundamentally missionary and called to evangelize. And I would particularly highlight uh, bishop Andrew Cousins and his sort of first press conference having been named the new bishop. Yeah, you've been talking Cruxton. about that since it happened month, weeks ago. I, I, it was wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, also really. Archbishop Gomez's address at the USCCB 
talking about you know a, a revisiting for a new story and these things the true yeah, story but they yeah. need the true story and the church yeah. needs to get used to the fact that we are not going to have the the status and privileges and clout in society that we used to and that was never any use anyway all it's about is saving souls so i i i, I am grateful for the uh, increasingly obvious shift in tone amongst the bishops towards a a footing of missionary evangelization me too well said Happy Thanksgiving, dear listeners. We are thankful for you. We really are. And if you want to know whether we're right a year from now, that means that we need you to keep supporting The Pillar so that The Pillar can have a Thanksgiving episode 2.0 at which we discuss our predictions from today. And that means that we need you, dear listeners, to go to PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe and become paying subscribers to The Pillar. Keep us doing the work that you love, um, and we will keep doing it for you. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, Ned and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. Gobble, gobble. Gobble.